Hello, and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm Rachel Geringer. Today, we're talking about the new Netflix documentary, Heroin, which follows three women, a fire chief, a judge, and a street missionary, as they battle Huntington, West Virginia's drug epidemic. I had the chance to sit down with the film's director, Elaine McMillian Sheldon, and one of the stars, Huntington's fire chief, Jan Rader, here in the studio on October 27th. We talked about the state of the drug epidemic in Huntington and the making of this film. I'm Elaine McMillian Sheldon. I live in Charleston, West Virginia. I grew up in West Virginia, make documentaries, the latest one being Heroin, which is a short film about three women, three women fighting the opioid crisis in Huntington, West Virginia, and featuring Jan Rader. I'm Jan Rader. I live in Huntington. I grew up in Ironton, Ohio. And I have been a firefighter for 23 years, and I'm also a nurse. And uh, I fight the heroin problem on a daily basis. I'm on the front lines. Yeah. Have you been um, doing a firefighter in Huntington for all that time? Yes, or? 23 years I've, I've been a firefighter in Huntington, West Virginia. Oh. And the only woman. Yes, I am the only woman. Still. Have been since 95. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. Yeah, it is crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I saw that you're, so you're the fire department chief, right? Yes, I am the chief. When, right now. how, when did, how long has that been true for? Uh, I was named the interim chief December 5th of 2016, and then I was made the permanent chief March 27th of 2017. Great. And so I just watched the film, and I'm going to try to ask questions that aren't too much of a spoiler for people who listen who haven't seen it yet. But you said something in the film about how you thought being the only woman in the in the department for mm-hmm. years really prepared you for the job of leading the department. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could say more about that. Well, you know, a fire department is kind of cliquish. <laughs> And uh, there's a, an old, good old boy culture there. So, you know, when I arrived at the fire department 23 years ago, uh, the wives had a problem with me being there and sleeping in a room with their husband. And uh, I can remember being in Kroger buying food to prepare the meal that night and a wife verbally abusing me and telling me I had no business being on the fire department. So, you know, throughout my career, um, there were times when I was isolated because they had a beef with me being there or somebody did. And, you know, so it's not like, um, you know, we work 24 hours at a time, so it's very different. And uh, it's very difficult to develop true friendships there. Uh, for a woman, you know, because there's always that, um, I don't know, there's just always an edge there. Um, So, and probably a little jealousy and other things that go along with that. So I served different capacities throughout my career, you know, of course, came up through the ranks. It's Everything's tested, served as a training officer for years and things like that. But, you know, probably... It, the interesting thing is, you know, when we were when I was young on the job, I had a couple guys that were really big, you know, and I'm not big. I'm, you know, 120 pounds. Well, not now, but I was 120 pounds back then. And uh, people would challenge me to stupid little things like a wrestling match or see who can put on their gear the fastest or who can climb up the fire pole the quickest. And I always took them up on their offers or their challenge. And I had one guy pull me aside and say, why the heck do you do that? Why do you take them up on their challenges? You know, they're going to beat you. I said, yeah, but they expect me to fail. They expect me to lose. But the day I beat them, nobody will ever forget it. So, I mean, I guess that's an attitude I developed to, to deal with a lot of things that came along with being the only woman. But, you know, I wasn't there to make friends. I wasn't there to be part of a good old boy um, crowd. I was there because it's a very self-fulfilling job. I can go home every night knowing that I've made a difference. And that's what I'm there for. I'm not there for 
to please them. So I think in that respect, uh, you know, it's lonely at the top. You know, and anybody will tell you that in a leadership role. So um, I'm okay with that. <laughs> wow. I had a whole list of questions and I'm like, I'm not going to follow these at all. Now I can tell. <laughs> okay. Great. No, that's great. <laughs> that's great. Um, well, I do, I do wonder if you could talk about a little bit what, like what the situation is in Huntington right now in terms of, in terms of sort of the heroin epidemic and, um, just sort of describe that for, for folks who haven't seen the film or. Okay. Well, Huntington is a town of about 49,000 people. It sits in Cabell County, which is about 96,000 people. And it's it's a hub for travel because it's where three states come together. You have Ohio, Kentucky, and West Virginia. And as far as roads go, a lot of people come through the area, travel through the area to get somewhere else. So Huntington is an area with, we have Steve Williams as our mayor, and uh, he's a very compassionate man. And... Um, he cares for his people, and he, he decided that we, as a community, were going to own this problem and so that we could deal with it because you got to know your enemy to, to combat your enemy. And he wants us to be known as the community that did something about their problem. So that's what put us in the spotlight, and we knew there would be a lot of negativity to that. But, you know, when... He started a mayor's office of drug control policy three years ago this month, and I was a part of that team. And that was because of my medical background, because I'm also a nurse. So uh, when we got together, we started talking to people on the front lines. And the first thing we realized that we have to do is we have to keep real-time data. Because all the data that we could gather about what the level of hepatitis B, hepatitis C, was or the number of overdose deaths we were dealing with it was all two years old it was all information that was sent to the state or to the cdc and vetted and that takes time so we started keeping real-time data that's the first thing we did right off the bat so in 2015 <laughs> we had 944 overdoses in cabell county and 70 of those were deaths about 85 percent of those numbers are within the city limits dealing with the 49,000 people. So the situation was bigger than we anticipated it being because we gathered those real-time numbers. So, but because of that, because our mayor took that initiative to make that mayor's office of drug control policy and he put three people who really care and go the extra mile, ethically and morally, uh, we have been able to tear down silos we have WVU Medical School working with Marshall Medical School and both hospitals on this problem. We have checked our egos at the door. We don't care who gets credit for this or that. All we care about is that we're able to help our people because obviously you can't arrest your way out of this problem. The only way to deal with this is to help on the demand side. So if we can help those that are suffering from substance use disorder, the supply is going to dry up because they're not going to make any money here because it's all about money. So, um, and a lot of it started with legitimate injuries. Probably about 80% of the people that we deal with on a regular basis uh, started with a legitimate prescription to a pain medication. Uh, when pill mills were shut down, when bad doctors were dealt with, you still had this addicted population because we as a society don't know enough about substance use disorder or what people call addiction. Well, I'm trying to be politically correct with that because, you know, part of what goes along with this problem is the stigma that we're dealing with. And uh, if we can erase that or lessen that, it's going to go a long way. So 2016, go back to stats, 2016, we had 1,400-plus uh, overdoses, and we had 132 deaths. Now, we were doing extremely well in 2016 until August 15th of 2016. And on that day, we had 26 overdoses in a five-hour period. That was the day that carfentanil was introduced into our area. Um, so 
the first seven months of 2016, only 26% of the overdose deaths involved some sort of fentanyl or carfentanil. The last five months of the year, 79.7 or almost 80% of the deaths involved fentanyl or carfentanil. So even as we are doing things to solve this problem, it's, there's so much collateral damage, we keep coming up against new obstacles. A uh, new product comes in, it's changed a little bit, a different analog of fentanyl or whatever. So, but that's one way of looking at it. And everybody says, well, it's worse. Yes, it is. But what, how bad would it have been had we not had things in place like a harm reduction program, which we were able to start? And, and that's why I think the world of Steve Williams, because here he was running for reelection and he supported a syringe exchange program. You know, that could have been political suicide for him. But that's what rural America needs desperately to deal with this issue. Because, you know, when you had pills, people had a metered dose, uh, a medical dose. They knew what they were dealing with. They didn't have all these medical complications that we now have because of IV drug use and sharing syringes and spreading bloodborne pathogens such as HIV and hepatitis C and hepatitis B. So it's changed in so many different ways. We actually made the situation worse by cutting off the pill supply. But, you know, the pill supply goes back to big pharma. You know, so there's so many different layers to this. We have a huge Narcan uh, program in our area, too, where first responders carry Narcan. We offer classes to friends and family members of those suffering from substance use disorder. They can take a class. They can get free Narcan. We have more than 1,100 saves from friends and family. Um, and we're constantly trying to stay, um, trying to find ways to, you know, peel back that onion. And we have programs that work, and we're finding more programs that work. And, uh, you know, we're just stubborn. We're not going to back down. <laughs> it's, there's no easy answer to this, but uh, by golly, we're going to get there. So, yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit, can you first describe what Narcan is for folks who haven't heard of Narcan, it? Narcan, uh, that's the trade name, and its real name is naloxone. And basically what heroin does or an opiate does is it attacks, attaches to certain receptors in the brain and, and that causes a release of dopamine and you feel really good, but it also suppresses your respiratory system. So when people overdose, they stop breathing efficiently and then eventually stop breathing at all. And then after about five minutes, they're brain dead and then their heart stops or starts to fail. So, you know, it's the key to reversing that is giving this drug, Narcan or Naloxone. And what that does is that knocks off the opiate off that receptor and they immediately start breathing again and that's what we want so that's why it works and it's the key to saving lives is to get to them before they have brain damage or it's too late so that's why it's it's imperative that first responders and friends and family have both the training and and the medication to reverse that overdose mm, okay and then um you talked a little bit about fentanyl and carfentanil. Yes. I'm not saying it right, am I? Well, fentanyl, carfentanil, it's just tit for tat. All right, know, all right. I mean, you know, <laughs> potato, you, potato, fruit you, route. <laughs> <laughs> can you talk about those a little bit? Describe those? For well, fentanyl is an opiate. It's a synthetic opiate. And uh, synthetic opiates were pretty much developed in, in starting in the early 80s, and then you had Oxycontin in, in the mid-90s, but they were developed for chronic pain and end-of-life care, palliative care. And uh, that's all great, you know, good intentions, but it turned quickly into let's give this pain medicine to somebody who has a sprained ankle and a bad tooth, and, and that's not what it was designed for, but that's what it became. Good, bad, or indifferent follow the money trail. That's all I can say. <laughs> so, and they also sold uh, opiates as a less addictive or non-addictive product, which is certainly 
not true. But fentanyl is a stronger than Oxycontin medication, stronger than morphine, stronger than heroin, uh, synthetic opiate. And um, there is medical grade fentanyl. But the majority of the fentanyl that we deal with when it comes to an overdose patient is non-medical grade. It's made illicitly in a bathtub or in a in a somebody's homemade shop. And a lot of times it's made in China. And uh, you can't order it over the internet. A lot of it is shipped to Mexico where it's cut into heroin and then shipped to the United States. So there's many different ways that it arrives here. But uh, some of the intel from like the DEA uh, has shown us that there are at least 22 different analogs of fentanyl. So each one, they can change up the formula just a tad and make it maybe a little stronger or make it beat this drug test or that drug test. So uh, it's interesting. Now, carfentanil is also a synthetic opiate, but it's typically used as a big animal tranquilizer. And I'm talking like with, you know, lions and, and elephants and things like that. Well, so it's even more potent than fentanyl. That's kind of terrifying. Well, if you're a dealer and you want to move product, you make it more powerful and you can cut it more and make more money off of it, you're going to do that. You know, we have a serious addiction to money in this country. Yeah. So. Yeah. Wow. Um. <laughs> All right. You going to say anything, Elaine? Nope. <laughs> I have a whole list of questions for you, too. I'm no, just no, no, no. Please, no, please keep going. This is great. I love it. <laughs> cool. <laughs> All right. Well, I do want to ask you some questions, but I'm going to follow this for a little, yes, a little bit still. Yes, please keep going. Please okay, keep great. Going. All right. <laughs> She's loving it. I am. I saw you take a little picture yeah. over there. Um, like a proud sister. <laughs> <laughs> so can you talk about your work specifically in terms of fighting fighting this epidemic. So we see we follow you a little bit in the film, but can mm-hmm. you talk about sort of uh, just maybe a day in your work life? Like, what does that look like? Well, as a chief, it's changed a little bit. Okay, so when I first met Elaine, I was a shift supervisor. And on my days off, I was working as a nurse in one of the local emergency rooms. And I did that for about eight years. So right now... We have an average of 5.3 overdoses in a 24-hour period, and that's within the city limits. So every time there's an overdose in the city limits, a fire truck is sent along with an ambulance, and the ambulance is run by our county. So EMS arrives, we arrive, and we typically beat EMS there. So we start what we call BLS procedures, basic life support, so we can rescue, breathe, we can give naloxone, and... um, hopefully revive that patient. Um, You know, 26.7% of the time, a firefighter in Huntington gets on a fire truck right now, they are going on an overdose. Less than 9% of the time they get on a fire truck, they're fighting fire. Um, 22 years ago, or 23 years ago, when I started as a firefighter, it was 10 years before I saw a significant number of dead bodies. And um, they were typically elderly, somebody who had a heart attack or whatever. Of course, there would be car wrecks or maybe a SIDS death or something like that here and there. But you had this long span of time where you could recover from that. You know, I have guys that are in their early 20s. They're brand new to the fire service. And they're seeing uh, a lot of dead bodies, a lot of young dead bodies in a year, you know, maybe 40, 50 And um, so the role of a first responder has completely changed, and it's completely changed in the last six, seven years. So we saw a little bit of heroin in about 2005, 2006, and I think we had eight deaths in a row there at one time from black tar heroin, and that was interesting. And then we started having pill overdoses occasionally. Uh, But uh, starting in 2011, when the main pill supply for our area was cut off, a lot of people in our area in Appalachia would fly or take a Greyhound bus to Florida and buy tens of thousands of pills in these pill mills and drive back and supply their own habit and then quadruple their money. 
That pill mill bill went into effect in Florida June 3rd of 2011, so it cut off the pill supply. So you still have this addicted population that need to not be dope sick. So they turned to heroin and IV drug use. And um, that's when we really started seeing the overdoses take off because they're not dealing with a medical grade um, substance now. So they, you know, it's Russian roulette. They don't know what they're taking. I've had users tell me the minute that needle hits their skin, they can say, oh, it's, it's going to be too much. I'm going to go out. It's uh, interesting. They can tell from the taste of it it's, or the color of it. It's, it's, an interesting, it's interesting to, to talk to people uh, day in, day out that have a substance use disorder. So we try to help people. We see the same people over and over again. A lot of people relapse multiple times before they're able to reach any type of recovery. Uh, it's part of the disease process. And we're learning. You know, my, I didn't learn about substance use disorder as a nurse in my training. And I'm an old medic, too. I learned uh, the street smart way. You know, so, and I'm still learning. Those suffering from substance use disorder teach me something new every day. And, you know, this problem is going to be solved in, in communities, probably. And it's going to be solved by listening to those who have the problem, the disease, and the people, the first responders that are, are dealing with it. They're the ones who are going to figure this out, not somebody in a suit sitting in an office. So, Yeah. Do you, do you have any thoughts? Are there kind of ideas among some of these communities that you're working with or in just Huntington around, like, what what might there be as long-term plans for this? It sounds like you all have kind of, you've been working on this. Yes, we have been working on it. And, and you know, it's slow moving, but we're moving. And uh, it's exciting, too. I mean, you know, you can look at it glass half full, glass half empty, or however, you know, some people are positive, some people are negative. I happen to be more positive. Uh, I, I celebrate every little victory that we get. Uh, we have people that have been users their whole lives in long-term recovery, and they're taxpaying citizens, and they're working on their master's degrees at Marshall University. And they, in turn, are going to help far more people than I could ever dream of helping because, you know, I, I don't know what they're going through, but somebody who's gone through it can guide somebody else through it. And um, peer-based recovery works that's that's one thing that we can do. Uh, harm reduction is huge and def definitely necessary in rural America now. Uh, it it never has been before. You know, harm reduction was for big cities that had a problem with HIV or AIDS. And uh, guess what? It worked for for containing and controlling uh, a deadly disease. So we're going to get there again. That's our example. Uh, we just now need those services in rural America and all over the country, not just here. Um, lead programs, you know, we got to stop locking people up for drug use. And we got to start offering treatment while in jail. We're getting ready to do that at the Western Regional Jail in close to Huntington. It's in Barbersville. We got a grant for that. So grants are helping us. We're getting ready to start a QRT team, which is called Quick Response Team. You know, when somebody overdoses, and uh, it's pretty evident in Elaine's film, and Elaine witnessed several overdoses while she was filming with us, it is not a teachable moment when somebody overdoses and we revive them with Narcan. Uh, sometimes they're in denial. Sometimes they're angry. Uh, it's a very negative experience. Sometimes they're embarrassed. It's a negative experience for the person who overdosed. It's a negative experience for the first responders there. Uh, people refuse even to go to the hospital to be monitored. So the quick response team that we're starting, and we got grants for this as well, we will be sending a team out three times a week, three days a week, where a counselor, a mental health counselor, or a treatment team member, uh, paramedics and law enforcement, they revisit people who have overdosed within 72 hours of that overdose, and they offer them services. But this does more than just offer them services. It's establishing a positive relationship with first responders in the medical field. 
and letting them know that we care about them and there is hope because that's what it's all about. And uh, Coleraine Township, just north of Cincinnati, had a program program similar to this, and it's been quite successful. And uh, we've talked to them extensively about their program and and, uh, molded their program to fit our needs. And uh, we're very hopeful that that's going to stop people who overdose over and over again. We're going to target the people who are most at risk to die first, which are your multiple overdoses. And then hopefully we'll get to everybody who overdoses. We got both hospitals that are going to work with us on this program. Uh, We also have some grants um, that are working with both hospitals to uh, set up a one-stop shop where we can have uh, detox and then get somebody right into treatment because that's one of our biggest issues in in Cabell County. We only have eight detox beds and we have people begging for detox. And sometimes you take somebody who's desperate and they're hopeless and you make them wait two or three weeks before they can get detox. I mean, you've, you've lost that opportunity to save their life a lot of times. So uh, we're trying to fix that as well. We want more detox. We want medically assisted detox, so it's not so cruel. And then we want to make sure that we have immediate placement for them in what is needed for them, whether that's medically assisted treatment, such as Suboxone, whether that's in residency program that's long-term, say six to nine months, or whether that's intensive outpatient services. These are the things that we need to continue and expand upon. And then we need to hit prevention. So I could talk about it all day long. (laughs) How much time do you have? (laughs) We have a little while longer, but I'm going to ask you one more question and then switch and ask Elaine some questions, which is um, clearly, clearly if you watch this film and Mm -hmm. and even just from talking to you today, it's, it's, it's pretty heavy work that you do and that your team does. It's, Mm -hmm. it's a lot of deaths. Like you said, it's a lot of young people dying. It's, I think folks from this region, right? Like if you grew up in this place, and you're my age or younger, you know people that you grew up with who've Absolutely. OD'd, right? And so how do you take care of yourself and your team through through this work? Well, that's uh, an ever-evolving issue as well because part of the collateral damage is to your first responders. Uh, I see alcoholism. I see behavioral issues. I see PTSD. And just like those suffering from substance use disorder, you can't make somebody get help. <laughs> so... I'm, I'll figure that out too, how to reach my guys. Some of them are not reachable right now. Some of them are, uh, but you know, that's, it's taking a toll on your first responders and your ER staffs, anybody involved in working with this. Now, me personally, I go hiking all the time and I'm a big cut up. Uh, I, I will make a joke about darn near anything. You know, and I think that being positive and uh, humor and just, you know, that's that's all you can do, you know. Um, when I go on an overdose too, you know, I, sometimes I have bad days. We all have bad days. But I always try to think, if I had a bad day and I saw a death, you know what? It's not nearly as bad as what that family's going through. So it's very humbling to me. You know, who am I to judge and who am I to, how dare I say I have a bad day when somebody lost a child or sister or brother? You know, there's always, it can always be worse. So I have a job, I have food, I have clothing, uh, I get to have fun, I have dogs that I can play with, I have family that I have fun with. So, you know, I think it's all on how you look at it. Well, thank you. Elaine, I'm going to switch and ask you some questions, and then we'll see how much time we have. Follow that up, Elaine. Yeah, there you go. Can you? <laughs> no, especially with her eyelashes. She's fancy today. Mm-hmm. You want to describe those eyelashes for our oh radio listeners? Jan is wearing mascara for the first time I've in ever seen her wear it. Six years. First so. time in six years. <laughs> a makeup artist put it on her. Why, why did you have a makeup artist today? Uh, Jan is going to be on MSNBC... 
uh, with Chuck Todd live on Sunday. But today we did a thing with MSNBC. It's Meet the Press. So we're doing the film's going to the Meet the Press Film Festival in D.C. November 13th, I think it is. And um, so we're showing the film and doing a Q&A. So they've been trying to do some promotion around that. So great. That's why she's wearing mascara. Why, yeah. Special occasion. <laughs> <laughs> Meet in the press. Um, so, Elaine, you said this in the beginning, but can you say again where you, where you grew up in West Virginia, kind of your your connection to the state? Sure. Um, my family's originally from Richwood, Nicholas County, but I grew up, I was actually born in Abingdon, Virginia, grew up in Logan, West Virginia, and then we basically just moved around for coal jobs. My dad was, we moved 12 times before I was in sixth grade, so um, mostly from Logan to Abingdon, Logan to Abingdon, but some other places, and so that was sort of my childhood, and then I went to South Charleston High School in Charleston, West Virginia, and then um, WVU. My parents live in Elkview, West Virginia now. My brother lives in Princeton, so... Um, I have one family member or two family members that have left the state, but pretty much we're all there. And I left for, after I graduated WVU in 2009, I left for eight years or so. No, six years. Yeah, six, seven years. And my husband and I came back last year to start making more work. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, I have a complicated relationship with West Virginia. <laughs> I love it, but it's a frustrating place, you know. I'd like to see it do better, and it's it's a hard place to, to see struggle because when you love a place that much, you want to see it. You want other people to respect it, and you want other people to see it for the way you see it, and it's certainly not uh, presented well to our nation. So, Yeah. So you, this is not your first film. Yeah. <laughs> um, and was it 2013 that Hollow came out? Yeah. Okay, so twenty, so Hollow is is called like an interactive documentary, right? So I wonder if you could describe what an interactive documentary is and sort of what that looks like or what that can look like. So Hollow came out in June 2013, and basically an interactive documentary is a choose-your-own-adventure form of a documentary online. You use a browser, you know, you go to Google Chrome or Safari, and you type hollowdocumentary.com, and things start animating, and you scroll, and you can continue to scroll for three hours because there's five chapters of content all based around different themes of home and uh, coal and uh, environment. And so there's 30 different short films in it. I trained community members to shoot their own content, uh, young and old. And so it's just a it's a huge collage of media created over the course of seven months in McDowell County, West Virginia. It tells the story of a boom and bust community and why those people have stayed. Um, yeah, it's a it was a story that I was drawn to because I was one of the brain drainers I'd left. I made it while I was living in Boston in grad school. And, um, you know, I was concerned about and still I am concerned about the amount of young people we lose and what's the future and all those questions. And so I, went, I saw that McDowell County, all 10 or 11 of their incorporated towns had lost population since 1960, like never had gone back up, but had continued to decline. And um, just thought it was an interesting place to sort of look at population and why people choose to stay in a place and what their hopes and dreams are. So, yeah. So what gave you the idea to make this film, to make heroin? I mean, this is a huge issue. We all know it. And some of us want to look at it and face it and figure out ways out of it. And some of us want to ignore it until it unfortunately hits our families or our friends. And then we have to look at it. So, um, this is not a distant story for anyone, including myself. I've lost classmates. Just a couple of weeks ago, I found out about a girl whose bugshot was coming across my Facebook feed where our daughter had been taken from her because of, she had heroin on her and they found her. And it's just it's just one tragic... I opened the newspaper and a girl I was in cheerleading squad with was being you know, sent to prison for robbing and taking all these ATVs to sell. And I mean, it's just, it's, con it's constant and it's nonstop, but it's not like distant people. It's, you know, people I knew really well growing up and considered friends and have grown apart, but are still a part of me in many ways. And so in a certain way, I'm, I've been avoiding this topic. Uh, I addressed it in hollow a bit through prescription pills. We had a section in there about the amount of overdoses through pills. This was before heroin was hitting McDowell County particularly, and the mayor at that time had been murdered for drug money and all this crazy stuff. And so, it, you know, I, I was a little overwhelmed with how do you 
approach this topic so that it's not this bleak and dire portrait that's hopeless and something people don't actually want to watch and doesn't actually help give us any way forward. And, you know, once you meet Jan and Judge Keller and Nisha Freeman and a lot of the other people in Huntington that are doing the work with them, you just you realize there are people trying to do something but they don't have the resources they need. And if you're a storyteller in Appalachia in West Virginia and you have the ability to reach audiences with stories, you have a responsibility to amplify the voices that need the attention, you know? We've we've heard we've heard all the bleakness, we know the problems. Now let's start talking about the solutions. So they seemed like a great trio of women to put out there to the nation, you know, like yeah, Huntington's been called the overdose capital of the world, but it's also got some innovative solutions, you know, first needle exchange, all these things that are going on there that aren't getting enough attention. So it felt like a way to not not sugarcoat or wear, you know, rose-colored glasses and look at a thing that's killing us, but instead show it through the lens of people that are fighting for a change. And so that that was my once, you know, once I met them, I was like, this is this is an obvious we have to make this. So did you go into the film knowing that you wanted to feature women working on fighting this issue or was it that really the people that you met guided that? No, it wasn't about women at all. Um, I met Jan. Jan introduced me to these two other women and we'd filmed with some men too. And we filmed at Lily's place, which is this place for mothers whose babies are born with, um, they're born addicted to whatever drug, you know, whether it's methadone, whether they're on treatment or suboxone or, so we had done a lot of filming with women, but it actually wasn't intended to be about women until the Center for Investigative Reporting put a call out for a series about a short film series about women making change. And Curran, my husband and I had shot about a week with them and it had just been sitting on a hard drive for about six months because we were shooting we're shooting another film about guys going through recovery. And so we looked at each other and we're like, we have a week of great footage. We should just pitch it and see if they want this because this is, you know, these because their and their lives had continued to change and we had missed so much and you know jam was getting promoted to fire chief and there was just all these things <laughs> happening that we were missing and i was really anxious to get back down there and the center for investigative reporting wanted it um and so they funded us to go back and we went back for about 20 more days or something like that on and off for over the course of a year just popping in um and so because they were looking for a film about women making change we made it about these three women so it was pretty easy to define who the three women that we had filmed would be because they work together. They're friends. You know, they, they we did a screening last night in Huntington. There were people in the audience that have been through the cycle of you three, you know, mm -hmm. this woman who was <coughs> trapped in sex work on the street, got off the street because of Nisha Freeman. She got, she's been, um, Jan's been on her own an overdose. She went through drug court with Patricia Keller. I mean, there, this is, this is all community work that's very intertwined and, um, and actually, the the only criticism of the film that I've heard, uh, I'm sure there's plenty of criticisms, but the ones that I that I have heard is that this just seems to these people just get along too well, you know, like this just can't be, <laughs> this this community can't be real. These these women can't actually be this caring, and and it's and it you know I think that's sad, and I think in society we have this, especially Trump, red state West Virginia, we don't see women strong women who are fighting for a sort of forward-thinking community, like, you know, changing the language around addiction, you know, these types of things, like doing doing the work. You don't see it coming out of West Virginia because the media wants, wants a one-dimensional view of the stakes. It's convenient for them, you know? They don't have to try. So they pop in for one day and get their sound bite and they're out. It doesn't matter to them. So that's why it was like these three women are great stereotype breaking breaking women. <laughs> and we do like each other. <laughs> well, and it, it looks like you work together a lot. We do. Uh, Trish, Trish Keller, Judge Keller's my best friend. And um, Nisha's my own personal hero, you know, because she's a realtor by trade. And, um, you know, some people get turned off on the fact that she talks about Jesus and, and, and the religion aspect of Nisha, but that is not her her core being. Her core being is ethics, good ethics and, and morals and um, helping people. And she's just a real person, um, getting them help and meeting them where they are is her goal. Um, the religion aspect of Nisha is secondary. And I, I don't think enough people realize that about Nisha. 
We had that talk on the way up, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Or day, way down, I guess. Yeah, and we made a we made an educational guide for this film. So anyone that's listening that wants to host their own screening, they can. That we, you know, as part of our deal with Netflix, we um, made this film free for education use, educational use, which means if you have a Netflix account, you can gather a hundred people, ten people, twenty. It doesn't matter. You can gather as many people as you want, as long as it's free. You can have your own screening, and we've created a really nice educational guide. It takes you through the different things that they're working on. And one of those things is changing stigma, you know, reducing stigma. And that's a big thing Nisha does. You know, she meets these women where they are. And um, it's not a it's not about labels. It's not about shame. Like she she's on the front lines of figuring out how do we treat these women for who they are and not as, quote unquote, prostitutes, Um, which there's a lot of there's a lot of labels attached. You know, there's men suffering from addiction face certain challenges but I almost feel when we don't hear enough from the women on the side you know when there's children involved and and when you have drug charges plus prostitution charges and your mugshots on the news like I think there's a whole another level of shame and stigma put on women um that we don't talk about a lot so and it's not that our film does that fully but I think Nisha's Nisha's story can help have the communities have that conversation You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT 88.7 FM. Today, we're playing excerpts from our October 27th interview with filmmaker Elaine McMillian Sheldon and Huntington Fire Chief Jan Rader. One of the parts that was just like so powerful for me was uh, Mikey? Mickey. Mickey. I love Mickey. Um, Showing up when you, for your ceremony, when you became the chief. That was a really moving moment. (laughs) Mickey and I go way back, and um, he's doing well, and he has life struggles like everybody else, uh, but he's happy, and he's healthy, and he's in his children's lives, and uh, that's amazing considering he started using drugs when he was eight years old because his mom got him drunk and high for the first time. You know, so he's smart, he's funny, Um, and I actually went to his one year when he got his one year chip for being clean and he I have his chip he gave it to me and um, probably the most humbling moment of my life is to get a one year chip from Mickey Watson <laughs> so quite an honor yeah yeah um Elaine I wonder I wonder if this is true for you that leaving West Virginia and going to school out of the region and living outside the region did that um did that affect your interest in kind of countering some of the national perception? Or was that with you all along? Did it change it at no, all? No, I wanted out of West Virginia. I never, I mean, I was like a kid uh, with dreams to live in New York and, you know, work for the New York Times. That was always my dream. And my family thought I'd be gone, never be back. And and I think once I realized, once I was gone, I mean, I lived in D.C., I lived in New Orleans, I lived in Boston, I lived in Miami, Charlottesville, I lived in a lot of places. And what's so striking is, like, how misunderstood the place I'm from is, and it's so frustrating. And when you know you have some skill or you can work hard enough to help maybe change that, like, why aren't you doing it? You know, there's nothing more important for you to be doing, in my opinion, Um and I don't think that, like, my work can do, you know, Apple Shop here. Look, like, look at the work that you guys have done. It's just adding to that conversation. Like, it's it's building upon the many pieces of work that I hope help just paint a more complex, you know, not always positive, but complex picture of what life is like here. Um, because I think since, you know, the declaration of the war on poverty, this has been the punching bag for America. And it's been um, the other America. The America we don't want to be associated with. And so what's interesting about West Virginia, especially in this, you know, particular uh, crisis is that we're a bellwether. You know, we're a bellwether when it comes to mechanization of jobs. You know, the, the rest of the country is now realizing like, oh, wow, we're losing a lot of jobs due to automation. It's like, well, that was a conversation here in the 70s and 80s in the coal industry. You know, we're, we're the bellwether for pills now turning to heroin. You know, it's, it's all over the country. But we were experiencing a lot of things. The national discussion is just now catching on to way before. And so in many ways, I think you can look at West Virginia as an example, or not just West Virginia, Kentucky and uh, Central Appalachia as an example of maybe what to do and what not to do in many situations. Um, 
you know, as an example for America. And I think most of America just writes this place off as backwards and um, not much to learn from, you know, and that's unfortunate. So, yeah, it, it wasn't a crusade until I left and had to defend and heard the, you know, why? How do you know the toothbrush was invented in West Virginia? Well, because if it was invented anywhere else, it'd be a toothbrush. Those types of jokes. Heard those enough that I was just like, let's see if I can help, you know. There's plenty of other people trying to help, but I think it's it's a, it's a responsibility for me. It's like, as an active American citizen, if the place I'm from is being portrayed as um, hopeless and no reason to, to care or to improve, then I think that, you know, I think it's a it's it's a interesting duty to take on to like add to a different conversation. I wonder how the screening went yesterday in Huntington. That was the first time you'd shown shown the film there? Yeah. It was great. Marshall University's journalism school hosted it at the Marquis Cinema and I think having it there rather than on like the college campus, it got a lot of people that maybe wouldn't have felt as comfortable coming to the university. And we had a lot of people like in either in long-term recovery, um, people from drug court came, lots of questions. I think it was a good, at the end of the day, it was a good community forum. There were a lot of people there that didn't know a lot of what you were telling them, Jan, which was surprising to me. You know, they, they live in Huntington, but they weren't aware of, I assume they live in Huntington, they could have lived elsewhere, but they sounded like concerned citizens that didn't have all the information and they used it as a forum for that. And that was cool. You know, you it guys was. were able to share information that, was really important to them, you know, mm-hmm. which it was a good mix of students and citizens and people in long-term recovery. And it was, I, I, I'm blown away by the film and I'm blown away by what Elaine and her husband were able to do to show that there are positives out there because it's, it's so refreshing because We've had a lot of people filming in Huntington, and it's the same old, same old, and want to show people shooting up and 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 the dark side of it. And um, you know that's that's not what we're about. Um, so it's it's a very refreshing film for me, and I'm very humbled to be a part of it. She could have picked any three women. I can name a hundred people that she could have chosen. You know, in Huntington that are working diligently on this epidemic um but she did an excellent job and she she has opened a lot of conversations and a lot of doors for us and um i think this is probably going to be one of the best educational tools out there to deal with the stigma and uh to deal with the hopelessness so um, you can read an article, you can watch a newscast, but, but, but this is so realistic. And I'm um, very proud of what she did, and I'm very uh, proud to be a part of it. So, And I know the other two ladies feel the exact same way. We talk about it all the time. And we're, you know, I wasn't that together at 30. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, I, heck, I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up. So that's, it's really cool. I, I don't think Elaine gives herself enough credit or understands the magnitude of what she's done. I went to Cancun a couple weeks ago. <laughs> that sounds fun yeah it was it was <laughs> so you know there was this new cave they had found in 2005 or 2006 and of course i wanted to go explore it you know so i'm an outdoorsy kind of gal and so i'm on this day trip and of course there's people from all these resorts that are picked up in a little minivan and driven to where you go and so you know of course i was in the group that was picked up first and behind us this family gets in and you, they have this great accent and you're like okay it's new zealand it's australian and they're talking and the the mother's almost 60 years old and they're doing this trip with their grown children for their youngest child's 30th birthday and it was just they were hilarious so throughout the day we find out that you know they're, they, they're from new zealand they had recently all moved to sydney australia and uh, so we learned what each one did over time so at the end of the day we've done this big cave exploring for you know hours and and we're eating at a buffet and and the youngest daughter who just turned Thursday 30 this was for her birthday 
she was a preschool teacher in Sydney. And so I asked her, you know, do you have behavioral issues with your children? Do you have a substance abuse problem like we do here in the United States? And she looked at me and she says, I knew it. I knew it. I recognized you. And her sister and her best friend that were with her had told her there is no way that the woman from that that documentary is on a trip with us. <laughs> and even though they had seen it, then she kept saying, I know that voice. I know it's her. I know it's her. But it was hilarious. So it was like <laughs> in Cancun, you know, you have people from two different countries brought together by a film. That's so amazing. Yeah. No, the I think I've never worked with Netflix before, so this is all new. Like the the reach, you know, over a hundred countries, all these languages. It's insane. Like you've gotten letters from Brazil, from Spain. Scotland, Spain. I mean, everywhere. Yeah. A ton from Australia. Seems to be getting a lot of you over there. Uh, and but the Italy. what's interesting about the letters you've been getting? I've been trying to like keep like sort of organize them in my mind. Is that a lot of them from people that are in long-term recovery. Some of them are from people that are first responders like yourself, some of which agree with your opinions about being more empathetic, and then others who acknowledge the fact that they're not as empathetic and they thank you for opening their eyes, which is so amazing. Yeah, like a 30-year law enforcement officer saying thank you Uh, because I was one of those hardcore guys that didn't care, but I get it. Probably 20 different countries, people from 20 different countries have reached out. It's 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 mind boggling. But, you know, that also highlights the fact that people in long term recovery or people suffering from substance use disorder, they need a cheerleader. They need cheerleaders and they need the stigma to go away because that's their biggest battle. So both of you mentioned in sort of different ways, but um, people coming to get stories about either Huntington Mm -hmm. or just generally about West Virginia, about the region. Um, And I'm wondering um, if you have thoughts about how it might be different for someone who grew up in West Virginia, who has personal connections to to the epidemic, to be making this film, both from your perspective, Elaine, in terms of someone who's really in in kind of national conversations around who's telling what stories, but also from your perspective of working with Elaine um, mm-hmm. as as fellow West Virginians, I wonder, um, do you feel like that affected the ability for this film to be so powerful, the fact that Elaine had this connection to the state? Probably had a lot to do with it because, uh, you know, we've had uh, people from all over come to Huntington and film. You know, of course, we've, we've shut that down now because it was almost getting... Too, too burdensome but um you know from the day first day i met elaine we clicked and it's and i felt at ease um and you know i'm a pretty much straight shooter and um either like me or you don't <laughs> elaine kind of liked me i think but uh and uh, you know it, it was just i trusted her from day one um I could tell she was a good person and she wanted what was best for what we were doing. And I, I had absolutely no hesitation whatsoever. She kept calling me her fixer and I finally asked her what that meant there for a while because she'd say, I need, I'm looking about something like this or I need this or that. I'm like, oh, you need to go talk to this person. You need this, you need that. And I'd hook her up with Nisha or the judge. And, you know, so it's funny, you know. So I, I found out that being a fixer is a good thing. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think I've ever made a film about people who have so much media exposure, like Jan. Like, that was very shocking to me. Like, she knew how to handle the media, you know, in air quotes. And Kern and I don't consider ourselves part of the media. So part of it was, like, spending enough time with Jan <laughs> so that she realized we weren't the media. You know, we were just these two people who were interested in her more than anything. And the, the interest is not in the opioid crisis as much as it is like these people doing this. So I think that that was like when I called her a fixer, she was just like she knew she knew what most people wanted when they came to town. You did. Like you knew exactly where they needed to go to get that shot. You knew what quote they wanted because they were all making this exact, exact same thing, which is useful. You know, like 
when the BBC does their thing, it's very useful for that audience and it's educational and informational. But we almost had to break Jan a little bit of like, you know, because she was so used to handling media. I've never I've never worked with most of the people that have documented their lives have, you know, I'm one of the first people they've ever experienced a camera. You know, it's it's part of the part of the process is making them get used to the camera. And that wasn't with Jan. Jan was very used to the camera. It was a matter of breaking her of like, she was trying to put herself on other people. And we're like, no, we're interested in you. <laughs> uh, so that was interesting for me, for sure. Um, but it's interesting. I watch other, I watch almost everything that Jan's in because I'm, I, I just find it fascinating I don't feel particularly, I feel like I'm invested in these stories, but I don't feel I'm particularly approaching things differently until I watch something. And you can see intention. You can see intention behind people's work. You can see why they're there. Um, and if they're there for a soundbite or a headline, Jan comes off as a, just a city, another city official. And I think like, I hope that when people watch her, when they see her as a you know, a West Virginian, you know, like someone who's like fighting this and who has many different, has good days and bad days. I think that like, that's good to see the average person trying to fight this thing, having good days and bad days, you know, it's not all rosy, but it's also not all hopeless. And so like, that was the goal because we knew, we knew a lot. It was, it was almost kind of silly to even add another piece about Huntington. Like there's so many pieces about Huntington. We, we thought about several times, like, what are we doing? Like, why is it any different than... So it was just like, let's in focus on these women and see what that, that looks like. <coughs> so. Well, I know you all have been in the car. <laughs> There's still a film screening tonight, so we can wrap this up here. But I wonder if you could both say something about like your hopes for this film, for, for, what, for what this film will accomplish, for where this film will go. Yeah, I like to set the bar hi <laughs> um i have several hopes for this film now that i've seen it i didn't know what to expect we didn't get to see it beforehand so we were all blown away so we all got up early and watched it. well nisha didn't but judge keller and i both got up early and watched it so but anyway <clears throat> my biggest hope is that people suffering from substance use disorder don't have to deal with stigma anymore i know that might be pushing it um, I hope that another thing that comes out of this film is the fact that people understand that a simple act of kindness can make or break somebody and can change the world. One person can change things. Um, I hope that that's conveyed. But I certainly can't deny that I hope it also brings hope to those that are hopeless and more funding sources for not only Huntington, but all of Appalachia, um, because people are hurting. And uh, unfortunately, it is going to take more funding to bring us out of this. Yeah, I don't ever go into a film make it with hopes because it's scary enough putting work out there. I don't read comments. Like, I just can't. I can't. I'm too sensitive to all these things that I... If I if I sat around and read comments, because surely there's going to be negative ones because it's the internet, it would probably like kill me in future work. I just can't be a part of that. I have to focus on what's in front of me and like not this like blob. So in terms of like goals, you know, of course I have lofty goals of like, you know, I'd love to see a pharmaceutical company, a CEO see that film and be like, I'm going to give a lifetime supply of naloxone to this to not just Huntington, but to this area that's been impacted. Because that's honestly like, the least they can do. Um, exactly. I want to see. I want to see that. I want to see more funding. I want to see. I want to see a better conversation around the criminal justice system and how we're treating people and how communities of color. Now that this is, you know, hitting middle class whites, uh, it's it's a disease and it's something that we're sympathetic to. But we certainly didn't feel that way during the crack epidemic. Um, and so I, I would like that to to happen. Um, which is a big goal. But I mean, I think that my tiny goal is that people people see people care, see that people care, you know? Like that if someone's sitting in their town in Kentucky and sees Jan or sees Nisha and they just pick up and go out that night and see if they can help someone, like that's huge. That would be incredible. So that's that's the over overall goal, so 
Well, thank you both so much for talking with me and also for this film, which is just really, really incredible. Thank and you. So I'm excited for all of our listeners to watch it on Netflix. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for having us. Yeah. Yes, thank thank you. you very much. That's it for today's edition of Mountain Talk, featuring our interview with West Virginia filmmaker Elaine McMillian Sheldon and Huntington Fire Chief Jan Rader. Sheldon directed the recently released Netflix documentary Heroin, and Rader stars in the film. To listen to this episode of Mountain Talk again, or to hear past editions, visit our website at www.wmmt.org, or download Mountain Talk wherever you get your podcasts. And from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening.